Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Hello like and welcome to the podcast That is always bad. up to speed with Formula One It is Friday, October 24th The eve of the American, the American Grand Prix The U.S. Grand Prix in Austin My name is Mark Hamilton And joining me as always, my friend my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, and uh, I've learned a new term for you. You are also oh, now my op, OPP. I learned this okay. term watching Nicki Minaj with James Corden and Carpool Karaoke. It means okay. my opposition or my competition, and I don't know if that accurately defines our relationship, but I thought it was fun. But my <laughs> friend, how the heck are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's funny. I was just, uh, you know, th- for for those that are on the live stream, they're actually getting a bit of a look behind the curtain here because this will be tidied up a little bit uh, before we uh, re- release the podcast. But we we pride ourselves that we have our show outline and we kind of have a, a rough idea of what we're going to talk about. It like in, in broad strokes, right? About what stories we're going to talk about, and we, we have all the information ready to go. But we we don't pre-script things it's like whatever comes you know like whatever happens to the, the 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 course of the show is just purely the conversation the dialogue between the two of us but having said that just now we were trying to get the show rolling here and there seems to be a bit of a you know a bit of an issue with the recording studio so i hit the record button and i expected like the the the, the opening uh music from jt the human that incredible opener that we have and nothing happened so <laughs> we're sort of sitting here and, and there, there's no music so guys watch on the on the live stream, you got to have a, a rare look, but like an unsanitized version of the uh, Scootery F1 pod. But uh, you know, nobody's perfect, I guess. Professionalism at its best. The good news, the good news is we have an action-packed show tonight. Obviously, yes. the championship is decided, but that doesn't mean that you and I are going anywhere. We don't pack our bags. We don't go on vacation. In fact, you and I, and I don't know that we're ready to share it, but you and I kind of set a personal milestone or objective that we wanted to mm-hmm. hit this year from a listenership perspective. And we think we can hit that milestone if we put in another 15 shows this year. So we do a couple podcasts a week. We should be able to hit our milestone. And I think that kind of lines with the commitment that we've had for the audience since the jump. So we've got yep. some really cool interviews coming up. We're going to sit down with um, Alanis King and Elizabeth Blackstock in a couple weeks when they get back from Austin because we want to discuss their new book about Haas Energy and uh, Haas and Rich Energy and that entire fiasco. They've written an excellent book. We have volume two of Book Club uh, coming with 
Bird Pinkerton, which I know we're super excited about. Obviously, earlier this week, we dropped that really great interview with Steph Wentworth. Big shout yeah, out to Steph for awesome. joining us and taking the time to sit down and do that. If you haven't checked that one out, please do. Um, and obviously, we'll do something special around Christmas like we did last year with our Christmas party episode. But I promise you, we're not mailing it in. We're going to be here. We're going to be delivering top-notch content, at least to the best of our ability, until uh, <laughs> until the new year rolls in and we can start getting ready for winter testing. Exactly. It's kind of funny when you think about it, just like, you know, when you said it's like October 20th, just a couple of moments ago, that's kind of like, like uh, such a sobering moment because I, I'm yeah, like the kids, they brought home their midterm report cards this week from school. I'm just like, wow. Like, I just feel like we had, <laughs> we, we just got like Labor Day weekend behind us. And here we are. We've just, we've already had Canadian Thanksgiving. We've got Halloween coming up before you know it. It's Americans Thanksgiving. And that really kind of kicks off like the whole holiday season, right? Because you get so many great holidays from so many different traditions, kind of like at this time of year, right? You got Diwali coming up next week as uh, as one and so many others from so many different uh, traditions and cultures. So it really is a cool time of year, but I just don't know. I, I mean, I had such a good summer this year. I've, I'm still not wet, ready and willing to let it go, but I suppose at My some friend, time it was, I probably it was should. 25 <laughs> degrees Celsius here yesterday. Our summer yeah. isn't over. Like, And again, for those that don't live in the Pacific Northwest, we've had this ridiculous summer that stretched deep into October. Although if you yeah. look at the forecast, our summer promptly ends tonight at about midnight and you'll hear yeah. us complain about the weather. My friend, I don't know if you've ever listened, but Bill Simmons does a segment on some of his podcasts called Parent Corner. And he's been doing it okay. for years and it's these hilarious reflections on his parenthood and i would really like to start doing occasionally a parent's corner like you're a great dad you've got three kids you probably have some really great experiences with your kids i have a son that is in private school and he is mm -hmm. now six weeks into his kindergarten year and we've had about 17 meetings with his parents and i believe he's been sent to the office more than any kid in his <laughs> k-12 school so we have many experiences that I could share that I think our listeners would get a kick out of. So maybe stay tuned. We do MotoGP Corner. We do the occasional F Formula E news. We obviously give weather updates from the Pacific Northwest. But in the future, you might start getting a Parents Corner update from, uh, from Daly's family and the Hamilton household. You know, like, I just feel like it's a good opportunity of like parents from all across like this awesome community that we've built over the past totally. couple of years to sit down and kind of like find like some sanity and realize, I thought it was just me. Or I thought it was just us. You know, it's yeah. just like, I'm, I'm glad to hear that these experiences just like aren't limited to, to my household. And it's not just your household. I'm sure that everybody that's a parent out there has those because there's always something, right? And, and yeah. that's what I always like. I remember that like when my oldest son was born and you're 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 a new parent and you're still i mean well you, i don't think you ever figure it out i think you're just kind of like you're learning as you go through like the different ages but that's the thing they just said oh like other parents would say oh don't worry about that this will pass in a couple of months and it's like yeah like that whatever it is whatever that uh, you know you're kind of going through that time it does pass in a couple of months but then something else just goes and replaces it and it just kind of keeps going through all the different ages and i'm just like i see the the, the 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 people that have like these ridiculously good children and i just hate them so much <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just not fair to the rest of us that struggle each and every day because you know those stories you're just relating about your son i'm just like i i feel like i've like well we, we could open that up maybe we save that for kind of like an after hours kind of like uh show and we just kind of like sit 
here and, uh, you know, just, <laughs> just I, dude, let it I, all rip. I have so <laughs> many stories. So let's package that up because I, I know I, I can see our listenership now just dropping off as we're not getting into <laughs> F1 quickly enough. But, dude, we've got a ton of F1 stuff. Where should, where should sure. we start tonight? Well, let's just do, uh, since it's a race weekend, it is the, the U.S. Grand Prix at the Circuit of Americas, one of my favorite races on the entire calendar. I think it's a great track. And I was really surprised when I was just uh, doing some of the research uh, for this show. I didn't actually realize, although it should have uh, been quite uh, quite obvious, that uh, Coda has only been around for a dozen years. It seems like it's been like an existing track for longer than about 10 years. I think they broke and broke around in 2010. And I guess, I guess the 10 year anniversary kind of has been all thrown off uh, because of COVID and everything like that, but love circuit of America's. I think it's got a wonderful free flowing, nice uh, kind of rhythm to it. I mean, they, they go start, finish, put the afterburners on, go up the hill and into that uh, 120 degree left-hander, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Let's just clear the palette. Like I said, race weekend, let's just go over the, uh, the uh, championship in both the driver's and constructor standings uh, on the driver's side max verstappen is the world champion for 2022 max currently on 366 points with five races to go sergio perez 253 a single point ahead of ferrari charles leclerc with 252 then you've got george russell with 207 only five points ahead of carlos Sainz with 202 points over on the constructor's side I mean, it's kind of been run running away with uh, Red Bull for a very, very long time. They currently have, as I pull up my notes here, that's not the constructors. <laughs> I just pulled up the driver's standings again. Anyways, Red Bull, 619 points uh, ahead of Ferrari, 454. Mercedes, 387. Alpine, 143. And then McLaren rounding out the top five with 130 points. So, Mark, did you want to give an update in the fantasy? I guess not, because we did have a race uh, last week, so I guess that's all pretty much uh, stayed the same. But if you no, have no, it no, handy... No, 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 yeah, I've got it you're open. Gonna do it. Okay, you're, let's hear it. You're then. assuming that our listeners listen to every episode, and I think that's asking a lot of anybody. But I'll quickly run through this. Number one, from the UK, Whitman R, 3,719 points. Uh, I'll discard the points today, make this super quick. Number one, Whitman R from the big UK, Number two, Thaddeus F from the UK. Andrew T also from the UK. Number three, uh, number four, Janka West from Canada. Number five, Aaron K. Number six, Marshall W. Number seven, Adam J. Number eight, Daffy A. Number nine, Radic W. And 10, uh, Merck Stappen. So obviously no movement since the last time we provided an update, but there was a ton of movement after the most recent Grand Prix in Japan. So this mm -hmm. championship, the Drivers' Championship is wrapped up. That's not changing. This one can definitely change. There are just mm -hmm. 14 points separating the top two people in this pool and just 16 points separating the top three. So this championship is far from over. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Well done, everyone. Look forward to seeing how this shakes over over the next uh, month and a bit and see who becomes the very first uh, champion in the Scooter F1 Formula One Fantasy League. Okay, so uh, you did mention that awesome interview with Steph uh, Wentworth that uh, dropped a couple of days ago. Uh, of course, uh, give a, I always give a little bit of love to uh, JT the Human for our wonderful intro. And well, first thing that, uh, that you have on the agenda here is uh, a picture of Lewis Hamilton holding a Denver Broncos jersey. Of course, Lewis is part owner of the Denver Broncos, who have kind of had a little bit of a, 
mm, so-so start to the 2022, uh, I was going to say Formula One World Championship. Obviously, uh, the, the Broncos <laughs> do not have a, a chance of winning that championship, but it's been a, a little bit kind of a shaky start at times for them in the 2022 NFL season. But, you know, they uh, made a big deal to bring Russell Wilson over from uh, Seattle there. So kind of cool to see Lewis Hamilton at uh, Mile High Stadium uh, this past weekend. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of cool that Lewis is uh, kind of doing this and uh, kind of, I mean, he's obviously a person that has a lot of uh, different interests, but uh, still kind of cool to kind of kind of cool to see that. All right. Next one up is a kind of a cool picture that you have uh, here with uh, Keanu Reeves sitting down with Felipe Massa, former Formula One driver. They got together in Sao Paulo um, earlier this week, and uh, that's all part of Keanu's upcoming documentary that's going to uh, premiere on Disney Plus about uh, Braun GP, the short but sweet but extremely epic season of the team that was the 2009 uh, world champions. And of course, Jensen Button was the uh, the driver's champion that year. And that uh, was the seeds that ultimately became the successful team, the juggernaut, the powerhouse we know as Mercedes-Benz. Okay, let's uh, go to the mailbag. So we've got one here for, via Twitter from Aaron Lewis, and that is at L3WI. And Aaron's question is, and of course I skip right past it here. Uh, hey, Marks, I don't know if you've heard about this uh, theory. Pierre Gasly is too ripped. When he came into the league, he was slim and was uh, able to score points and podiums. But ever since he started getting more and more ripped, he has scored less and less. What are your thoughts? So this is an interesting one because so we kind of had to uh, toss this one around in our group chat with uh, our good friend and former race driver, Tim Haraney. You, Mark, you thought that might be a little bit uh, detrimental, but Tim, he thought that uh, it shouldn't be too much of an impediment to um, to uh, Pierre. But again, I guess what it really comes down to is, you know, how much you know weight would he have put on? I think ultimately you, you, you can't be too fit to be a Formula One driver, but of of course, weight will be a bit of a detriment, and we all know that uh, that muscle and lean muscle mass uh, mass weighs more than anything. But I guess ultimately, if he is, um, you know, not you know tipping the scale any higher than he was previously before he was more ripped, as uh, you know, as Aaron puts it, then I don't see it really uh, being too much of a, a handicap for him. What do you What are your thoughts? Very much the same. And one, Pierre Gasly looks exceptional right now he is in the best shape of his entire life but i i don't know that and i i don't know that i can disagree with tim because he's the actual professional race car driver that's been in these cars i don't <laughs> think i don't think pierre's current state of fitness is impacting his ability to maneuver a formula one car effectively but certainly to mm -hmm. your point i i think there's a point where it can be a detriment when it just becomes too much uh too much mask and it simply takes up too much space in that cockpit that these cockpits are entirely small and and endurance and and core strength are critically important um physical mass uh, at a certain point there are diminishing returns and certainly i don't think pierre is getting any specific driving gains from his current state of fitness but i also don't think his current state of fitness is impacting his ability to maneuver a formula one car that said i i think 
you probably would find more sensitivity to this on, on a motorcycle and a MotoGP bike for sure. Again, mm-hmm. core fitness and endurance are critical, but mass isn't always particularly helpful. And I think strength is really important in a Formula One car in part because of the G-forces, but also because maneuvering that steering wheel itself is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Whereas on a MotoGP bike, and certainly Aaron's not asking about a MotoGP bike, but uh, turning in on a MotoGP bike is very much a feathery feathery smooth soft process when you're navigating those those handlebars but yeah i don't think his current state of fitness would be much of a detriment but certainly there's a point where there would be diminishing returns in terms of how it would Mm -hmm. age your driving ability and there would be a point where absolutely it could become a detriment yeah you know i would think if uh, anything uh you know to when it comes to like his uh, scoring less, I think that's probably more down to the fact that the car that he's got this year, especially, uh, is uh, not as good as uh, maybe the one that he had last year, maybe even the the, the year before. I mean, this this year the the Alpha Tauri just hasn't been uh, quite you know quite up uh, to, to, to scratch. Anyway, said so the next one, this one I kind of uh, actually uh, missed, and uh, you know, so why don't you introduce this one and talk about it uh, a little bit? So this was what you called the uh, tweet of the week, and this comes from. The Alpha Romeo team. So tell us a little bit more about this one, Mark. Yeah, I am so unoriginal. Like every segment of the show has been stolen from another podcast. So this one was <laughs> stolen from uh, from the No Dunks podcast on The Athletic. Uh, shout out Lee Ellis. But tweet of the week, uh, one of our great listeners, Rishi Barrett, sent us a tweet and said, hey, guys, you should talk about this on the show. And it's a really cute story. And, and in this story, um, it almost seems too sweet and sappy. But uh, allegedly, the Alpha Romeo team received a letter from a young fan with $19 and said, hey, basically the letter said to the effect of, hey, I really want to help you build a better car and this is all the money I have. And he sent it, I can't remember it was $19 or 19 euro, but there was no return information on the envelope. So he had sent this letter and the Alfa Romeo team obviously wanted to recognize this young fan for making an effort to contribute to their financial well-being. And they did a global search to find this young driver and they did eventually find find him and they brought him in and introduced him to the team um and it was just a really cute sappy story and like i said it's almost too cute seems almost manufactured but if it is legitimate if it is authentic it's very very cute and i appreciate that alfa romeo shared this with the world and i haven't previously retweeted this uh, but i have as of this moment so if you want to check out the twitter feed uh, they have a nice one minute and four second video that documents the uh, the journey the experience and the search for this young this young fan yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Okay, so here we go. The next one is Adrian Newey's most successful design. So this goes down a bunch of uh, different uh, Formula One cars that uh, he's, uh, you know, obviously uh, designed uh, over the years. So coming in at, uh, I, let's see, how many do we have here in total? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, at 10, we have the 2010 Red Bull RB6, won nine out of 19 races. And that is uh, similar to the 1998 McLaren MP413, which uh, won 9 out of 16 races. The 2005 McLaren MP420 won 10 out of 19 races. The 1993 uh, Williams FW15C won 10 out of 16 races. The 1992 Williams FW14B, which I have a little tiny model of somewhere just up uh, out uh, outside of the screen here, won 10 out of 16 races. The 2021 Red Bull RB16B, so last year's car, won 11 of 22 races. 
The 2011 Red Bull RB7 won 12 out of 19 races. Getting into the top three, we have the... um, Pardon me. The 1996 Williams FW18, Damon Hill's championship winning car, won 12 out of 16 races. The 2013 Red Bull RB9, which is the last year that Sebastian Vettel won the world championship, won out 13 out of 19 races. And the number one most successful car designed by Adrian Newey is the 2022 Red Bull RB18 that has currently won 14 out of 18 races and obviously with five races to go that uh, number could increase by the time we get to uh, yes marina in a couple of uh, different or sorry in a couple of uh, weeks from now so kind of a a cool one uh, here so red bulls wins by year so this is a kind of all over the place and obviously this uh, you know there's a big correlation between their championship uh, winning years and when they don't they won six nine twelve seven and 13 races in the years 2009 to 2013. Obviously, that was a very successful period for Red Bull. Then in 2014, starting off the, uh, the, the, the turbo hybrid era, three victories, none in 2015, two in 2016, three in 2017, four in 2018, three in 2019, only two in 2020, then last year in 2021, 11, and then this year, 14 race victories thus far. So there you go. Some impressive numbers to, uh, you know, the, uh, the the Red Bulls championship uh, winning years. Anyways, Mark, let's take a little uh, break here. When we come back, we're just going to switch gears very briefly because this is a story that really hits close to home for, uh, for uh, both of us here. And we'll bring that up in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. 
Okay, welcome back. So, Mark, I'm going to let you quarterback uh, this story, and this has to do with the Formula E race that was supposed to go this past summer here in Vancouver. It was supposed to happen over the Canada Day long weekend at the, uh, the, the beginning of July, and that never actually went down, and you and I were very suspicious about whether or not this was actually going to happen because months before this thing was ready to get going, you and I would just remark as, uh, you know, either of us had been downtown and go to where the, the track was supposed to be set up that this facility or this uh, the, the, the roads that they were going to close and host this race on were nowhere near the caliber of surfacing that they needed to host a, a top-level FIA-sanctioned event like the the Formula E E-Pre that never uh, you know, went off. However, they uh, did uh, take a lot of ticket money and, uh, well, they've now been uh, served some papers. So there is a class action lawsuit and they're being sued by a bunch of uh, ticket holders to try and recover the mo- or some of the money that uh, people have uh, paid because uh, I think they went anywhere. Tickets went from anywhere from a couple to several hundred dollars all the way up to about thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars per head per ticket and uh so they uh they sold more than thirty three thousand tickets you know while they were you know had the uh, had the portal open and there's some very upset people that uh, are trying to recover the money that they they put forward to the race that never happened so why don't you pick it up from here i love daily this is why i love doing a podcast with you Hamilton, I'm going to let you quarterback this, but before I quarterback it, let me just read out the story in its entirety. <laughs> Dude, I, I tease, I tease. Yeah, man, and you're right. The The history of open-wheel racing is dotted with mm. races that never happened. For every Grand Prix that happens in Indy and Formula One and Formula E, there's 17 that get proposed but never actually happen. The difference yeah. with this one is... It was proposed, the the track was presumably designed, and they sold tickets, and they sold an awful lot of tickets, and this race was supposed to happen on Canada Day, so July 1st of this year. And you know, you and I were down there in March and April, and we're walking mm-hmm. around the area where this event is supposed to take place, and we both knew three, four, five, six months out that this race was never going to happen, at least based on the timetable. So the event was canceled in, in April, basically the FIA pulled the plot. Um, this was an FIA sanctioned Formula E event. The city was also very quick to pull the plug as well, because likewise, I think that they saw that this was going to be problematic. Um, so the FIA pulled the event and the race organizers subsequently promised that, hey, we're going to refund the tickets in June. And then the race organizer said, we're going to refund the tickets in July. And then they have just ghosted everybody in the four or five months since that time. So the company itself is refusing, refusing to acknowledge calls from the press for statements. Um, They haven't responded to legal papers. And they're also, also potentially going to be sued by the company that did the ticketing requirements. So uh, obviously, if Hmm. I'm a race organizer, I don't have the infrastructure to sell tickets. So they contracted to a different company that was intended to sell the tickets. They they sold the tickets, passed the revenue through to this OSS group, and the OSS group Mm -hmm. has just vanished. So the ticketing agency is who's also being sued in this, um, says we would give the money back if we had it, but we gave all that money to the OSS group. If the OSS group gives us that money, we will refund ticket holders. But the OSS group is absolutely 
completely ghosting everyone. And I think my frustration hmm. here is that the FIA and the Formula E holding group, which is effectively the commercial body, although at the end of the day, F Formula E is kind of unique that even though it kind of has a privately held commercial group that kind of manages the commercial side of the sport, that group only ever exists because Formula E put out a tender for somebody to take on those responsibilities because Jean Todd wanted an all-electric open-wheel racing series. But ultimately, the FIA has completely washed their hands of it, and they're just directing everyone to the race organizers, and the race organizers have vanished off the face of the planet. So presumably, 33,000 tickets, including my family, are not going to get a refund. And I think this is a horrendous look on the FIA and the Formula E holding group because at the end of the day, they presumably did their due diligence on this group and recognized that they were financially solvent and that they could take on the financial responsibilities of hosting a race like this in the city of Vancouver. The race organizer couldn't. They effectively collapsed. They've disappeared with people's money. They refused to respond to the media, to the fans, to legal cases. Um, and that money is now effectively gone. And as far as I'm concerned, the FIA, the Formula E holding group are the ones that should be refunding the money. And then they in turn should go after the race organizers because they were the ones that sanctioned them. So just an unfortunate outcome altogether. And I think it's left a really sour taste in the mouth of people in Vancouver, um, who obviously mm -hmm. were huge supporters of the old indie race that was here back until I think 2004. And I think there was some strong and excited people here for a Formula E race and it didn't happen. So Hopefully, hopefully there's some good news, but this class action lawsuit against the OSS group probably won't be fruitful because if the OSS group is ghosting people, it's probably because they don't have the funds themselves to refund at this stage. Yeah, it makes you wonder where they, you know, they they reckon that they collected somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, two and a half to three million dollars in ticket uh, revenue. So it's like, where did the money go to? Because I mean, there certainly wasn't anything to show for it on the ground. But however, that being said, earlier this week, uh, a fellow by the name of Richard Chang, who's a lawyer with the uh, Diamond Diamond Lawyers in Vancouver, filed uh, this proposed class action lawsuit at BC uh, Supreme Court. Mr. Chang said he's heard from uh, a number of ticket holders, including uh, one, uh, you know, a party who put down 90 large on a hospitality suite. Now that's that that is not a small amount of money. So you would have to think. I mean, because usually when you get like big events here, the corporate community in Vancouver steps up, right? And um, you know, there, there's there, there's a lot of uh, you know business money to go around for 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 big events. So you can imagine that uh, whoever you know threw out ninety thousand bucks for a hospitality suite would be pretty sore about uh, you know losing that uh, that 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 money. All right, so we'll, we'll keep uh, keep an eye on that. So I guess we're kind of sticking with uh, skullduggery, or I guess uh, alleged skullduggery in this case, or, or maybe a, I guess it isn't alleged anymore, but I guess the the extent of it still needs to be uh, uh, disclosed. And of course, uh, this is the ongoing saga with the the, the cost cap breach uh, that was announced uh, last week that Aston Martin and both Red Bull had exceeded the 2021 cost cap that was uh, put in place by the FIA. So apparently they have, um, you know, this is the FIA, that is, they've made an offer in negotiations with Red Bull over this uh, budget cap uh, breach. So this is uh, kind of uh, interesting. And according to the BBC's Andrew Benson, the first step in resolving this issue has been taken. So the FIA have laid out terms for an accepted breach agreement and uh, there are no other details have been released. They're all confidential at the moment. And uh, it's now up to Red Bull to decide whether or not they want to accept the terms, whatever the FIA's 
proposing to them. But you have to think that I guess this would be similar in the court of law that if the prosecutor comes to you as, a, say, a, like a defense lawyer and they say, I've got a plea deal for you and your your client, you can either take it or or not and we can go to trial and kind of try your luck. So it'd be interesting to see what the terms of this uh, proposed uh, breach agreement are. Um, but until it sees the light of day and, you know, because this isn't government, this isn't tax money at play that I guess they're under real, they're not really under any obligation to disclose this to the, the, the formula one, you know, world to like to anybody such as ourselves or anybody else, uh, any other fans, which I think would be frustrating, but I hope they do the right thing. I I hope that, uh, what, whatever the this uh you know this deal is that you know they're they're not going to let them off lightly and i hope that it's not similar to like the the ferrari engine deal from a couple of years ago which everybody knew that something funny was going on and they had like this secret in- agreement in place with the fia that never saw the light of day even till now and we've kind of speculated it about it many times on this program uh in, in the past but I don't know, Hammy. I, I know that uh, you were getting pretty heated uh, this afternoon where we were all kind of texting back and forth about it. Uh, you seem to think that something smells fishy here. and You don't like it. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. And again, I, I want to make sure that I don't come across as just pointing blame or blanket blanket carpet bombing the FIA with my comments here because ultimately the financial regulations as they're written are a construct of a collaborative process between the teams and the FIA and Liberty and I don't like I don't like the way that this is going to play out and I think ultimately Red Bull will be smart and they're going to accept the ABA um, that will effectively mean that they concede that they admit to having overspent in 2021 um, and that they will be hit with a minor sporting penalty. But the most important part of this for Red Bull is that in accepting an ABA, the only meaningful punishments that could be parlayed onto them, which would be a reduction in driver's points for 2021, a reduction in constructor's points for 2021, or a reduction in the cost cap in the future, they will be effectively given immunity against all of those punishments. So if Red Mm -hmm. Bull tomorrow agrees to an ABA with the FIA, this matter is effectively sealed, that there will be some penalty, which may or may not ever be disclosed by the FIA, but there will be no impact to really their operating capacity moving forward, minus possibly a reprimand, although I highly suspicious that we'll ever hear of that, that or possibly some sporting penalties, which would mean, hey, a little less aero time, a little less wind time. But it's largely meaningless to a team that's already won a championship. So I'm frustrated, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, all of this is a byproduct of the regulations as they're written today, and everybody accepted this. So what I would expect to see based on the comments recently of Matteo Bonato, and and I think we'll talk about Zach Brown in a couple minutes, and of course, Total Wolf, is that I think there's a sobering moment here where they all agree to the new Concord Agreement. They agree to the financial regulations, which of course includes the cost cap. The cost cap is the backbone of the financial regulations. And now that they've seen a breach and they've seen how two Toothless, the penalties 
potentially are, um, I think there could be some pretty fast and furious revisions. And then unfortunately, there'll be yet a further asterisk against the 2021 championship because this could be yeah. that anomaly where yeah. a team was able to overspend. We potentially never know by how much. There may not be a meaningful penalty. And then going forward, there could be much harsher sanctions for overspending simply because the teams recognize the weakness and the toothlessness of the regulations as they were originally constructed. So I'm I'm disappointed by all of this. And this isn't this isn't me being negative because it's Red Bull, because ultimately I'm far more concerned about the competitive and financial integrity of the sport as I am one team winning over any other team. Um, but uh but yeah, I don't like the outcome. I, I just think it's a byproduct of the way the regulations were written. I think Red Bull will accept the ABA. I think the penalty will probably be concealed. And unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know how much they overspent by. Yeah, which, uh, you know, I, d- I don't like either. I think that uh, where, where I kind of landed was, you know, a reduction in the cost cap, uh, plus, uh, you know, a little bit more on top of it. I mean, it... <sighs> I, I don't like the fact that uh, we're here now that it's occurred and, uh, you know, they, they, they do have this loophole. They need to tighten it. But that doesn't mean that uh, because they, they kind of came up with this uh, very loose uh, framework in which all the teams had to operate within, that doesn't mean that uh, because of wh- whatever reason it is that uh, that any transgressors should uh, be able to walk away with it and basically get a, a slap on the wrist. You know, uh, I, I think that... Um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with uh, with Zach Brown. I mean, regardless if it was an intentional or unintentional, I mean, it still amounts to to, to cheating. I mean, if you did it deliberately, sure that that's that that's cheating outright. But I mean, even if it was unintentional, maybe it's not cheating in the like the truest sense of the word. But you definitely gained an advantage uh, because uh, you know you were still spending and, and developing the car, and even though you thought you were within the parameters, you're still investing money into that development program. Daily, right? I'll just, I'll add quickly as well, because I'm looking at the live chat. So for those of you listening to the podcast, we do live stream this. So we have great live chat going. Marshall made a really great point in the live chat right now. And he said, um, he's like, there should be no asterisks. The teams followed the rules, including Red Bull, that Red Bull isn't getting some exceptional exceptional outcome or some waiver here, the FIA is following the financial regulations as they're written. So ultimately, if they accept an ABA, that was built into the financial regulations. And that was always designed, intended, presumably as an outcome in a scenario like this. And likewise, if there is only a reprimand or a minor sporting uh, minor sporting sanction, again, that's how the rules are written. So they overspent other teams didn't. And if there's a weak mm-hmm. penalty, no penalty, a reprimand, no reprimand. If they accept the ABA, that's just how the rules were written. So like I said earlier, if there's anyone to be frustrated at, it's everybody involved because they all collaborated on the construct that is the financial regulations. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because uh, Sky Sports F1 is uh, reporting that uh, Red Bull are going to hold a special press conference on Friday to uh, speak to this uh, specifically. So for all of you here in uh, you know North America, that should uh, happen at a, a pretty friendly time on Friday. So perhaps by the time you're listening to this, that uh, may have uh, just dropped or might be. So uh, you know, should uh, take a look uh, and see if we can follow that in real time. But then Saturday is when it's going to be interesting because uh, Horner, Christian Horner, that is team principal for Red Bull, is going to appear at a press conference uh, with the FI team's representatives. And then he'll be there, uh, you know, facing the, the, the media 
be, beside his very good friends, Mattia Bonato from Ferrari and Zach Brown from uh, from uh, McLaren, both of whom have been you know pretty outspoken and pretty blunt in saying that anybody that has uh, breached the cap should be you know punished extremely extremely harsh. So this uh, you know there there should be some interesting uh, moments coming up in um in, in the next uh, couple of uh, days uh anyways uh, just to talk about the the comments from Zach Brown that uh that, that you mentioned uh, just now so uh he did write a letter to the FIA which uh he said uh, that Red Bull uh breaching the cost cap uh, does uh, constitute cheating using his own words anyways I'll read uh you know a, a little bit from uh, what Zach had to say and he wrote quote any team who have overspent have gained an unfair advantage both in the current and following years car development uh then he goes on to say that uh, the fia should communicate subsequent action and penalties at a pace uh, to maintain the integrity of formula one end quote so i mean i i totally understand uh what what uh, what he says but uh you know maybe i'll just read a little bit more here just so we get like the 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 full uh you know brunt of it rather than just taking a you know cherry picking a couple so anyway says zach says quote the overstand spend breach and possibly the procedural breaches constitute cheating by offering a significant advantage across technical sporting and financial regulations the FAA has run an extremely thorough, collaborative, and open process. We've even been given a one-year dress rehearsal in 2020 with ample opportunity to seek clar- any clarification if the details were unclear. So there is no reason for any team to say now that they are surprised. The bottom line is that any team who have overspent has gained an unfair advantage in both the current and following year's car development. We don't feel a financial penalty alone would be a suitable penalty for an overspend breach or a serious procedural breach. There clearly needs to be a sporting penalty in these instances, as determined by the FIA. We suggest that the overspend should be penalized by the way of reduction to the team's cost cap in the year following the ruling, and that penalty should be equal to the overspend plus a further fine, i.e. an overspend of $2 million in 2021, which is identified in 2022, would result in a $4 million deduction in 2023. Two million to offset plus the overspend. Uh, sorry, uh, to offset the overspend plus a two million dollar fine. For context, two million is a twenty-five to fifty percent upgrade to an annual car development budget, and hence would have a significant positive and long-lasting benefit. In addition, we believe there should be a minor overspend sporting penalties of a 20% reduction in CFD and wind tunnel time. These should be enforced in the following year to mitigate against the unfair advantage the team has and will continue to benefit from, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think uh, what he says there that uh, there, there was an overspend of $2 million, it should be a deduction of uh, $2 million for the overspend plus a $2 million fine. That's that's pretty much what, what I was thinking, too. But I guess uh, ultimately, um, how this thing will get sorted out is uh, will be completely in within the, um, the, the the framework that exists now. So it might uh, appear to be a little bit uh, toothless to, to, to some people, but at the end of the day, it will be just uh, what they're they're able to do with the mechanisms they have available to them now. But that doesn't mean that they 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 can, or that you know, that means that they can. They should tighten the loopholes here, so it doesn't happen again in the future. We can move on, but I I just I want to add that this letter is awfully awfully shallow. Um, it rings awfully hollow because Zach Brown, obviously one of the most I, I would say persuasive and and vocal 
team principals. Well, I guess he's not even a team principal. He's the CEO of the McLaren Racing Group. But ultimately, he's one of the most influential people in the entire paddock. Where was where mm-hmm. was this this structure in this proposal? 12 months ago, 18 months ago, 24 months ago, we had a dry run in 2020. 2021 was the real deal. And now 10 months after we effectively closed the books on the first year of the cost cap, now we're talking about this. I mean, ultimately, yep. this is meaningless. Like if if you believe this is the case, you need to get Matteo Bonato and Total Wolf in the same room and you need to get them to agree to to these terms. And and likewise, obviously, with Christian Horner and Helmut Marco and the Red Bull team, because the small teams are all in favor of a super harsh cap and super harsh penalties, because most of these smaller teams will probably never spend to the cap. So there's no risk to them. He needs to be getting those guys in the same room. Like if Toto's really upset about this and Matteo Bonato is super upset about them, get them in a room and hash out a proposal for new language that you can take to the FIA and Liberty and get them to enshrine it in stone for 2023 and onwards like do that like this letter otherwise is hollow it's it's basically just fan service it's lip service to the community of mclaren fans that are upset that red bull will be a will be perceived to have stolen or cheated to win a championship Hmm. yeah exactly i don't have anything uh, further to add you know like i say we'll be watching this one with great interest to see how it plays out uh, over the next uh, couple of days hey mark let's take a, another quick break when we come back on the other side we're going to talk about yeah, audi boy. and a bunch of other things and then eventually we'll get to our race preview in a little bit later on so we'll do that but first time for a quick break we'll be back in just a moment so don't go away When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back. Yes. So there's uh, some news on the Audi front. Uh, They had an event in Madrid, Spain earlier this week to detail a little bit more about their Formula One uh, project. So uh, the uh, they had uh, Adam Baker, who was uh, there and uh, Adam had to say, quote, we would love to be competitive from the get go, but we have to be realistic. We want to be in a position to be competitive to win races from the third year. We understand the magnitude of the challenge ahead. We are aware, but we want to show that we can work and achieve success. We know well what the challenges are. If we compare ourselves with the other brands, we are in a a different situation. For starters, we have plenty of time until our debut. There are 42 months left until our first race. In addition, we are at the beginning of the 2026 regulation, so we are at the beginning of the cycle. As an entry point, 2026 is a very attractive year. To succeed in Formula One, you have to have it all. We're going to do everything we can to achieve that, not just to develop an engine. We're going to invest in the whole team. Now we are about 130 people working on the project. In the end, we will believe that we will be more than 300 workers, end quote. So very, very interesting. So what, what do you think? Do you think that uh, this is a bit of a, a lofty goal, a realistic goal that uh, that they're setting? So if they're going to come in in 2026, they predict that they're going to be uh, winning races in F1 by the end of the decade, by 2029. 
I don't know. I mean, I mean, Audi has a proven track record in other forms of uh, motorsport, but to, to me, that seems an awfully short cycle to come in in 2026 and be winning races within uh, three years. But who knows? It's a much funner <laughs> topic to, to to kind of conversate about as opposed to this endless cost cap nonsense, which is I just know, kind right? of a big downer for all of us. But yeah, it, this is the exciting stuff that we should be excited to talk about, which is Audi's coming to Formula One. And we don't yet yeah. know how. We know when. It's going to be 2026. We don't know if they're going to have their own team. We don't know if they're going to buy a team, if they're going to start a team. Like All of these things are possibilities. But I think what I took most from this article, which I think was from soymoto.com, and obviously we're reading a really well-done translation, but Adam Baker, who of course has a world of history in, in Formula One with a number of different teams, including Jaguar, etc., uh, he's basically been put in charge of the engine project. But he makes notes in a couple places in this article to their grander ambitions beyond the engine and he hints mm-hmm. he obviously speaks to the fact because he was asked about the the rumored tie-up with Sauber and of course Sauber is now in the process of winding down their marketing relationship with Alfa Romeo and the belief yep. or the impression is that they're hammering out details with Audi for a largely kind of ownership stake in that that organization so presumably Audi is going to take a 75% stake in Sauber and make it a works team um, he does kind of try to defer kind of move away from that question. But he does talk about a couple of things that make me think that Audi certainly doesn't have an ambition to be strictly a power unit provider. Uh, He talks about the fact that, hey, they're already internally talking about drivers and that they would love to have somebody, a Spanish driver like Carlos Sainz. And given the fact that this interview happened in Spain, obviously there was a little bit of a kind of media service or fan service to uh, a local fan favorite. But the fact that they are already thinking about the timelines that, hey, we are going to need to be able to start tracking our engine, putting our engine on the track in 2025, and that we're going to need drivers that are committed to our project largely in place by 2024, tells me that their vision Mm -hmm. certainly isn't to be strictly an engine supplier, although they acknowledge that uh, based under the current technical regulations and the current Concord agreement, that if required, if requested, they would have to supply engines to a different team. Uh, But ultimately, I think their ambition is to be a works team, and they certainly wouldn't be making all of this effort to simply be an engine supplier. They want to have those Audi rings on the front of a Formula One car come 2026, if not earlier. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, my takeaway from you know a couple of things in there is that when when you know when when Adam says that that they're good, they're aiming for three hundred people. That that seems awfully light in terms of a team that's going to be you know like a standalone works team. And to to me, it would have to be okay, maybe they're going to hire 300 people and then maybe they're going to take over another team because I I know things are a little bit different now. I totally agree. I think it's going to be the 300 people in Germany for the power unit and it's the 600 people that already work for Sauber in in Switzerland. Precisely. That's what I think as well. Wait, Sauber is in Switzerland, right? I'm not losing my mind today? Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah, it is late. It's already like uh, getting pushing on ten thirty p.m. here, Pacific Standard Time. But yeah, I believe I can't remember. Was it Hanwill in yeah, you got it. You got Switzerland it. Yeah. or somewhere? Yeah, yeah. But uh, sticking with twenty twenty six, this is interesting. So there was um, an announcement that was made uh, earlier this week uh, by Saudi Arabia's uh, Minister for Sport, and that is His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Turkey Al Faisal. I hope I did uh, that name well justice. Yeah, well done. Uh, that is a very, very impressive name, but I guess if you're a royalty, you get impressive names rather than Mark. 
My friend, you are <laughs> I officially fun at myself you are the Shaw of the Scuderia F1 virtual studios. I am the prince, you, you are the go. Shaw. <laughs> That makes me feel so good. Uh, anyways, um, Al Faisal had to say that uh, they want to um, you know, have possibly two races in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia because uh, obviously we've been a Jeddah for the past uh, two years. They've got the the new track and Kadia coming online in 2026. And Prince Abdulaziz said uh, that they won't say no to the possibility of uh, having two Grand Prix in the Kingdom there, but it um, you know remains to be seen whether or not that could uh, be pulled off or not uh, because you know, this kind of couples nicely with comments that were made by Formula 1 CEO Stefano de Domenicali this week who said that uh, we're going into next year with what 24 races on the calendar so they're right at their max now so now I kind of see a bit of a uh, what do you want to call it now um I guess I guess the best way to put it is that, that there's going to be a demand for for, for Formula One because if they just kept expanding and, and handing out races here or there, I think now that they can really kind of charge the premium that they want for for, for race hosting events, and you know Saudi Arabia is already on the uh, on the calendar with, uh, with with Jeddah obviously. And of course, it's a very, very wealthy nation. There's a lot of money. I mean, I don't think that they would turn their nose up at the at the race hosting fees that uh, that other race organizers might not. But it'd be interesting too whether or not it comes to that that you know come 2026 that they still only have the capacity for 24 Grand Prix. And a couple of years ago, I remember Chase Carey was saying that they had to, up to 40 different venues globally that were interested in hosting a Formula One race. So I mean, if we got 24 on the calendar next year and you go by those numbers and who knows how accurate uh, or that they were even to begin with, let alone today. But let's just say for a fact, we, we take Chase at uh, face value. 40 venues globally want to hold a Formula One race. 16 of them are left, you know, with, the, with, with nothing. And considering, you know, there's already a very heavy Formula One presence in the Gulf region. You know, we've got Qatar, we've got um, uh, Abu Dhabi, we've got Saudi Arabia. I mean, there, there's already plenty of races going on in there. And, you know, they kind of bounce back and forth at different times. And Bahrain, of course, I'm, all, I'm, I'm forgetting about. And we kind of come to that part of the world and, 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 you know, at different times during the year. So I, I don't, I'm not saying I don't think it would happen. I just, I, I'm just not convinced that it will happen. Yeah. What, what do you think? Multi, multi, multi billion dollar entertainment complex in Kadia. So Kadia is a major development that is being built in, in the deserts, in the canyons, on the outskirts of the country's capital and largest city, Riyadh. And originally, Jeddah was always designed as an interim solution to get a race into the country and to start exposing uh, local fans to Formula One. And the long-term objective was that they would move it to Kadia. But I think the, the reception of Jeddah, both on the calendar amongst fans in general and and with locals has been such that there's an appetite to keep it on the calendar. And you and I in the past have talked about what if they were to look at an alternating schedule? So every even year, maybe you're in Jeddah and every uneven year you're in Kadia. But I think given the sheer the sheer cost of the Kadia venue, I think that to see a meaningful return, they would probably want to race there every year. Seeing two races in this country, I think is going to be a challenge because uh, the next story, which mm -hmm. we'll get to in a couple of minutes, we'll kind of speak to why that might be a challenge. But I think ultimately... Um, like you said, there's an awful lot of races in, in the Gulf region already. Um, but 
you never know with Formula One because at the end of the day, Liberty's principal objective is to show value to its shareholders. And one of the three mm-hmm. ways that you earn a meaningful revenue is through race sanctioning fees. And ultimately, I, I'll be honest, I think there's going to be huge pressure on Canada in the coming years, on Mexico, um, on on on. Britain, especially given the fact that Britain is facing some massive, massive and very scary financial headwinds. Um, I think there's going to be some traditional races that will be under pressure to one, uh, significantly reinvest in their facilities that some of these facilities are great classic tracks, but maybe don't have the fan amenities um, that a lot of the newer tracks have. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. when you look at what some tracks are paying and race sanctioning fees to Liberty, some of them are paying nothing relative to some of these newer venues. And I think ultimately the grim reaper is going to come knocking on the door of some of these more traditional tracks and if they're not able to come up with 50 million dollars a year and kadia is offering 65 75 million dollars liberty is going to take a long very hard look at that and i'm not saying it's going to happen but i just i, I want to be clear that formula one has made it abundantly clear that at the end of the day the long-term historic value of a track is is really trumped by the sanctioning fees that they can extract mm-hmm. from a different venue yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I can see also like the Saudis as well with, with the mindset it's like, well, hey, you know, there's three races in the U.S. You know, why why not uh, you know two here in Saudi Arabia? Because I mean, if they're willing to, uh, I mean, let, let's face it, I mean, they they got plenty of money. It'd be like fifty million for the race hosting fee. Do you do you want you know cash, cash check, check yeah. credit? <laughs> <laughs> check. It's, it's just like whatever we we can we can we can make this happen right now. I mean, I, I don't see money and the race hosting uh, sanctioning fees uh, like like an issue for them at all. I, I think that ultimately it'll come down to like you say it's just like where's the demand going to come from and 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 let's just face it i mean obviously like you say in britain they're facing some pretty turbulent times ahead uh, in terms of uh, you know the, the financial situation there but I mean, there there could be other places as well. I, you you made some really good, um, you know, like uh, mentions just there, Mexico, Canada, because I mean, the Mexican Grand Prix is already being heavily subsidized by the by, by the state government there. Canada, I, I'm not too sure, but I mean, you know, typically, I mean, although there's a lot of, you know, Canada is still a wealthy country, I just don't know how much urgency there would be to, you know, splash out 50 or 60, 65 million dollars in, in, in race sanctioning fees. And so it wouldn't just work. Just to add yeah. one more thing to this as well, we've had a lot of listeners reach out this year and they've started to get the pre sell notifications for races next year, races that in a lot of cases they've been attending for years or they've attended multiple times. And there's this real sticker shock that next year, and even this year, a lot of the races are 50, 60, 80, 100, 150% more expensive for the exact same tickets. And I think we've all celebrated like, wow, this track is paying $50 million a year and this track is paying $40 million a year. But if I'm a race mm-hmm. organizer, um, there's only two ways I can cover that race sanctioning fee. I can sell sponsorships to the race and I sell tickets. And if my race hosting fees double, my tickets are going to double as well. So I think if you can afford to get to a race today, this year, next year, um, I would not hesitate. I would not put it off. I would meaningfully make an, an a significant effort to do so because um, we're talking about global inflation and the cost of increases and blah, 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 blah. I would just say, if you can afford to go to a race today, do it because you may not be able to afford to go next year. And you and I have talked so much yeah. that we'd plan to go to a couple of races this year. And just honestly, candidly speaking, um, we're feeling like as 
kind of middle-class folks living in the suburbs with our families. Like we felt those inflationary pressures and you and I had planned to be at Austin this year. We promised to be at Austin. And when we just look at the cost of travel and the cost of tickets and just being responsible parents, it just, it ultimately didn't make sense for us. Now, four years ago, when the tickets were 25% of what they are today, sure. You know what? That would have been an easier conversation, but yeah, meaningfully, sure, it's just sure. really challenging now. So if you can afford to get to a race, yeah. folks, like best practice, just do it now because the prices are going to increase exponentially in the next two years. Yeah, great point. Uh, just kind of uh, leaning into those comments uh, that uh, the Stefano Domenicali uh, made a little bit earlier. So he said in an interview with motorsport-magazine.com, quote, 23 to 24 races is a good number, but I don't want to discuss more. The venues are chosen around this number. There are many factors that are taken into account, but the number of Grand Prix is clear. At 24, the maximum is reached. The market demands this number of races. We used to have 15 races, but that was a different situation. There's a lot of interest now, and hopefully it'll get even bigger in the future, end quote. So obviously he's not closing the door on it uh, completely, that uh, he seems open to expanding that calendar in the future. So I'm not really sure what uh, you know he's uh, really getting at. I think 24 is probably what is um, you know allowable under the current Concord Agreement, I think, to expand above 24. 24 and beyond, they would have to renegotiate that. And, and, and let's face it, at 24 races a year, we're basically racing half of the calendar year as it is. So, I mean, when you get up and and, and beyond that, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a big, uh, big commitment because, I mean, now, I mean, for, for you and I and everybody that follows Formula One, if you start watching winter testing, that uh, starts getting going in what, about the... Uh, middle to third week of February, the the season gets going. I think it's the second weekend in March, and then it goes uh, thick and furious and fast all the way up till the end of July. Then you get that four week shutdown in August, and then you know once you pick it up again at the end of August at Spa or whatever it's going to be uh, next year. The, the races just come really, really quick. We're right on top of one another. I, I was thinking last week when there was no uh, Grand Prix after Japan that it it, it you know it. I only seem to notice Formula One more on the weekends that there aren't any races, if that makes sense. It's just like, you know, you almost uh, get used to the fact that you're going to be sitting down watching qualifying. You're going to sit down. You're going to be watching a race on a weekend. And the weeks, uh, the weekends that uh, there isn't a race, especially over the last couple of years with the bigger calendars, those free weekends really seem to stand out more to me than the, than the weekends that there are a race. I don't know if that's the, the same for you or not. Yeah, I completely agree. And no further comment. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, well, let's uh, let's do this. Uh, let's um, just take a, a quick. Well, no, let, let's actually just get into this one because uh, apparently Portimao, where we uh, had the Portuguese Grand Prix over the past uh, couple yeah, of years, great race. That's great kind of track like a, and great race. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I was really surprised too. Um, I was really. Um, I, w- I was really quite excited to see some of these tracks come onto the calendar. I know a lot of them were kind of really kind of thrown in there at the last moment in 2020 because of the uh, the, the, the pandemic and uh, just with the way that that schedule was really kind of thrown together. The more I think about it, I'm, it really was remarkable that we had the oh, 17 race season. I know we had a couple of like back-to-back races in uh, in Austria and at Silverstone, 
But I mean, the fact that they, uh, you know, they, they managed to get 17 races and get some of these uh, tracks back on the calendar, like like Turkey, where we hadn't been in years and years and years. And then to get other tracks like Mugello and Portimao, I thought was just uh, wonderful. So, you know, I, I don't know uh, if this uh, w- would actually happen again, but, uh, you know, Formula One was able to go back to Portimao for another Portuguese Grand Prix. I would be all for it because I thought it was a wonderful track. You know, it's got a little bit of everything. It's got some tight technical uh, corners. It's got some fast swing sweeping corners has got some nice fast sections so certainly it uh, it seems to be uh, a place that uh, a formula one grand prix would be uh, well suited for okay let's take another uh, quick break when we come back we will um, talk about lewis hamilton so we'll do that in just a moment so uh, don't go away we'll be back in just one moment with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, welcome back. And yes, now it's time to talk about uh, Lewis Hamilton. This one comes uh, courtesy of motorsportweek.com. And Hamilton says he plans to stay at Mercedes for the rest of his life. So the uh, he was saying that the idea for himself to stay with Mercedes, even after retiring as a driver, saying that uh, that he's going to be with the team in some capacity for the rest of his, uh, his life. And, you know, at, at this point, you know, could you really see Lewis Hamilton uh, doing anything else? I mean, the, the, the one... Uh, comment that uh, you always hear that oh Ferrari is the biggest team in the world every driver wants to race for Ferrari at some point but you know when it comes to to, to somebody like Lewis what he's done with the uh, Mercedes uh, since uh, well since he's been there it's just like wh- why would he ever want to go like you know surely I mean you know, even, even the allure of uh, you know winning a championship with Ferrari just seems like a lot to take on for anyone, especially the challenges uh, that they have. Um, anyways, um, Hamilton uh, said that uh, he's uh, thinking about, uh, or, or Total Wolf hinted that uh, Hamilton wants to drive for another five years, which uh, I, I totally think is uh, possible. Anyways, uh, Lewis had to uh, you know responded to the following by saying, "Quote." Possibly, yes. I'm feeling good. I love what I'm doing. We have a lot of work to do to achieve still, so I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. It's not that I'm not sure. I know what I want to do. I plan on staying longer. It's just not set in stone on how long. I plan on staying with Mercedes for the rest of my life. That's a definite. It's more than figuring out what we are going to do down the line and even beyond racing. I want to be building with Mercedes, and that is a lot that Mercedes can do. And it's not just as a car manufacturer, end quote. So there you go. I mean, the, the one thing that we know about Lewis is that uh, he certainly has a lot of different ideas and a lot of things that he wants to do. And it sounds like he wants, uh, he's got a lot more that uh, he wants to try and do with Mercedes. And that doesn't necessarily uh, relate to racing when the, the time comes to hang up the, the, the gloves and the one helmet. One thought, and it's not a unique thought because I think even you and I have talked about this before, but we, we shared off the top that, Lewis Hamilton was in LA this week for the Denver Broncos game because he now owns a small piece of that team. Why isn't there more conversation or why is Lewis Hamilton, and maybe he's doing this behind closed doors, but he's clearly committed to Mercedes and he will never drive 
I should say never, but he will most likely never drive for another Formula One team. He helped them win seven constructors titles and six drivers titles. And he was there when they won another driver's title. So he's been there for collectively 14 championships in the decade that he's been a part of this team. Why is there not more conversation about Lewis Hamilton taking a slice of of this team? And really, ideally, Mm -hmm. that probably should have been uh, litigated and hashed out years ago because I have to assume that the valuation of that team is exceptionally high if it was to ever enter the open market in any percentage. We know Total Wolf owns a third of that team, but if I'm Lewis Hamilton and I know Total wants me back and I know the value I've added to this team over the past decade, I, I'm I'm okay with my fifty million dollars a year in in driver salary. Give me a chunk of the team because fifty million dollars, a hundred million dollars worth of stock in this team could be worth five hundred mm-hmm. million dollars from a decade from now. And if I'm Lewis Hamilton, and as Toto's indicating, he's committed to this team for the rest of his life, and Lewis says he's committed to this team for the rest of his life, quote unquote. Um, I would want a mm-hmm. piece of that team because clearly he's interested in ownership of professional sports franchises, and given what he He's meant to Formula One and this team in particular. Um, I kind of feel like maybe they owe him a slice of this team. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. But uh, l- let's uh, kind of break that down a little bit. There's no doubt the profound impact that Total Wolf has had an influence that he's had on uh, on Mercedes and what they've achieved. The same can be said for 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 Lewis Hamilton. And then the one name that uh, that we absolutely need to pull it, put into this conversation is the influence. Uh, that uh, that Nikki Lauda had on this team, and the fact that that Lewis and Nikki were extremely close, like Lewis was deeply um, saddened and um, you know grieved for for Nikki when he passed away last year, and I can I can really kind of see Lewis at some point in the future kind of sliding into that same sort of role with the Mercedes that uh, that Nikki Lauda had uh, for the uh, that uh, number of years. So who knows? Um, you know, I, I think uh, there's there's a lot to be said uh, for what you're just uh, you know. Uh, laid out there, Mark, that uh, perhaps uh, that uh, they could cut him into a, a chunk of the team. And Toto, I think he's uh, done pretty good out of the deal. I think that, uh, you know, with all the success that uh, that they've had over the past, uh, you know, almost decade and under Toto's guidance and the fact that you say he owns 30% of that team, Toto now is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of about a, a, a billion, $1.25 billion, I think, is uh, his current, uh, you know, net worth. So he's uh, done okay out of the, uh, the, the, the deal. Okay, moving along to a team that hasn't been quite successful or as successful as Mercedes is their American cousins Haas. And team owner Gene Haas says that uh, he wants to see Mick Schumacher score more points after the crashes that a German, a young German driver have had uh, this year have cost the team a fortune. So is he basically suggesting that uh, Mick basically has to pay for the damage that he's caused to his car by scoring more constructors points and hopefully for them uh, bringing home more prize money at the end of the year? Because that's the way that uh, that I saw it. Anyways, um, uh, when uh, Haas was speaking to the media at uh, the NASCAR Cup race in Las Vegas last weekend, he said that Mick Schumacher's uh, future with uh, the Haas F1 team will be decided by Mick Schumacher and new- uh, nobody else. Uh, anyways, uh, he said, uh, quote, we need Mick to bring home some points. We're trying to give him as much time as possible to see what he can do. 
If he wants to stay with us, he's got to show us that he can score some more points. That's what we are waiting for, end quote. So I don't know. I mean, he's a, I guess you could kind of like uh, see it two way that he's uh, issuing a challenge to uh, a, you know, a young driver that they think is capable of more. But, you know, cynical me can't help but, but thinking that uh, they want more championship points so they can uh, get more prize money to kind of offset the, the, the damage because we know how notoriously tight on the purse strings that uh, this team is and the fact that they don't really have a lot of money to begin with. So my, th- th- that was my take. I don't know if you if you agree or disagree with me my there. My friend, uh, I was chatting earlier this week with uh, a really good friend about this Mick Schumacher-Haas situation, and he made a really great point, which is this team may have had more patience for Mick or more patience for Mick in his development if he had delivered more in the form of sponsorship. And and it kind of it, it was oh, kind of like a click moment point. for me that when you sign up to bring somebody like Mick Schumacher, the son of seven times world champion Michael Schumacher to your team, there's this assumption that, hey, maybe that in itself would attract some big name sponsors to your team. And clearly that hasn't been the case. So I, I think there's a couple of things at play here. One is that Mick, and like I've said before, I still regard this as his rookie season because last year was so dysfunctional, hasn't been great. He hasn't been terrible. Um, And I think we've seen this team really level out from a performance perspective after some early gains, especially from Kevin Magnuson in the first couple races of the of the season, but I think it's tough to judge just how quality he is because the gap between him and K-Mag isn't quite as big as I think some people in the media might want you to think it is. Uh, But the next story is also pretty telling because this is a team that's not exactly in a position of scoring a Mick Schumacher link sponsor, which might guarantee another couple of years for him in this ride. So as much as I hate to say it, he doesn't have any leverage in any kind of contract negotiations with Haas. And if there's agreement there like I said last week he's kind of he's kind of just got to take it but at the same time I'm not confident that there is going to be an agreement there I think my gut at this point mm-hmm. says that he will be back on a one-year deal with a very short leash but I'm not convinced that that's going to be the case yeah, yeah, I I could uh, completely see that uh, playing out. It's interesting too because uh, you would think with like the Schumacher name that uh, there would be plenty of uh, you know uh, potential sponsors lining up. I mean, just like his dad and I think even his uncle Ralph Schumacher that uh, that Mick is uh, sponsored by Deutsche Vermögensberatung, which is a, a German wealth advisor and uh, I guess a mutual funds or that sort of stuff. And uh, they, I mean, um, they sponsored Michael for years. I've got a Schumacher hat around here somewhere. I think that uh, their logo is on it, and I know that. Uh, they they sponsored them for for a very very long time, but uh, like like I say, you would think that there would be plenty, especially of German exactly. companies willing to get behind uh, Mick. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I could uh, totally see a, a one year deal for for him at Haas next year. So again, another one to uh, keep an eye on. So apparently, uh, Haas they've not been uh, quiet this year. They um, uh, announced a new title sponsorship for for twenty twenty three, and this will be uh, with uh, payment company MoneyGram. So this is uh, interesting. This is a multi year part. Partnership, uh, which has uh, basically been, uh, you know, announced in time for the U.S. Uh, Grand Prix, and uh, this will uh, be uh, an official change to the name, as well as a revised livery for 2023. And um, it, it's interesting because they've they've never really had, like, I would say a bona fide you know title sponsor i mean some of the title sponsors they've had have been uh, a little bit uh, you know 
don't really need to go there with this specifically who like some of them but uh, i mean uh, rich energy you know like uh, that that one is just uh, an incredible story and I, i'm really looking forward to uh, hearing elizabeth's uh, take on that uh, when she comes back onto the show in a couple of uh, weeks okay so uh, we talked a little bit uh, earlier about um uh, uh, Audi, I guess uh, the, the, it would have been a little bit uh, better to talk about Porsche at, uh, at the same time, uh, because, uh, you know, that that uh, long rumored partnership with uh, Red Bull was, uh, you know, officially blown out of the water, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago by by Red Bull. So um, Porsche, you know, they, it was rumored they wanted uh, you know, about, uh, you know, to buy a 50 percent stake in Red Bull and they never wanted that uh, to happen. So the the German uh, car manufacturer they've uh, denied any rumors that they're they're planning to pull the wa- uh, plug on an entry to Formula One, and uh, so I guess they're still looking at uh, different ways and what they call viable paths uh, to get into Formula One. Mark, Mark what do you think uh, that this might go from here? What, what's I think your it's going to be feeling? very different than what we expected. And when we talked about the Volkswagen Group entering Formula One, and we've been talking about this for years now, the conversation was always that Porsche would enter and build their own power unit, and that Audi would enter and build their own power unit. So rather than collectively using the unified resources of the Volkswagen Auto Group and building one power unit and stamping it with two different brands, that they were going to build two separate ones. And for Porsche, that was always going to be pretty easy because they were going to buy a big chunk of Red Bull, and Red Bull had already built the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure to develop a power unit. Audi, meanwhile, wanted to build their own and have already started. They have the facility, they have the infrastructures, as we discussed earlier, they're in the process of hiring hundreds of people. Porsche, meanwhile, has done nothing. They were in the process. They had assumed that they were going to take a very significant stake of Red Bull. And when that fell apart, they were left completely empty handed. So my sense is now, I don't know that there's the same appetite with the executive group at, at Volkswagen at the Volkswagen Auto Group to allow them to now build their own power unit. And my sense is that if they do enter Formula One, it's going to be in a very different form than it was originally going to be. And my sense is that Audi would probably build the power units and feed them to Porsche. And Porsche might simply enter via a marketing exercise. So they could be Audi motors that are stamped with the Porsche emblem or that they're developed collaboratively or that the greater forces at the at the Volkswagen <clears throat> Auto Group basically impose a impose a rule set upon Audi that this is going to be a collaborative affair. I just think it's going to be different. It's going to be different than what we talked about for so long, which was going to be two completely separately developed power units. I think now, ultimately, if Porsche does enter, they're going to be using whatever it is that Audi spins up at their factory in Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with you 100%. Okay, um, unfortunately, uh, because we're having issues uh, with the the virtual studio tonight, I can't actually uh, start playing the MotoGP corner theme song here. So we'll we'll spare the you know everybody listening, uh, you know, our attempts to uh, you know sing the intro, and make the motorbike but, engine. Uh, that, You'll probably- add it in post, right? Like that's what yeah. we do. We add it in and post. So I can imagine the jingle playing. I can imagine the motor starting. But two <laughs> quick stories from a MotoGP perspective today. Yep. One of which I probably should have hit on a couple of weeks ago, and. And it's all about the Timothy Booth Amos scandal or Tom Booth Amos scandal. A couple of weeks ago, a video emerged from a Moto3 event. So Moto3 is effectively the MotoGP equivalent of um, F3. And this video showed a rider uh, returning to the paddock and getting off his bike and promptly being 
physically assaulted by his crew chief in the garage itself as they disappear from camera. And in the frame, you can see some other people witnessing this and basically turning a blind eye. And this video came out a couple of weeks ago, and of course, it created a huge uproar that the culture of MotoGP and the culture of motorsports could allow this, especially for a driver. It, actually, I shouldn't say that. Regardless of who it is, that they're associated with the team in any way, this is unacceptable. But the driver, Tom Booth Amos, was quoted as saying, and I read, the video that appeared is from the 2019 Thailand Grand Prix. There were a lot of issues with the team that year, which were never spoken about. I kept quiet just to try to keep my ride for the 2020 season, which ultimately didn't happen, hmm. as it was my dream to stay in that paddock. This this event, this moment, happened after that race when my bike broke down to a due to a mechanics error. I was asked by the team not to say anything and to keep quiet. I never told anyone, including Dorna, who is the MotoGP equivalent of Liberty, and my management at that time. That's just one thing that happened that year. People don't know what goes on behind the TV screen. Now, Repsol Honda rider Paul Espargaro has said that he thought it is appalling and incredibly sad that it took three years for this to come out. And, and I quote from Paul, this means that some people in the paddock are used to these kinds of things. Somebody saw this and wasn't used to it would say, hey, this isn't right. But if this happened and no one said anything, it means it's happened in the past and people are used to it. For me, it's sad that it's only appeared after three years and it's something that must be radically finished. Normally, we've seen many times the riders who lose their manners talking to the mechanics of the crew chiefs, and I think it's in both parts' hands. We figured it out that one chief of mechanic did this to one rider, but I've seen many, many more times a rider, top riders in MotoGP, talking very bad to the mechanics. This is very sad in both ways. And what's really terrifying about this is that this chief mechanic was still gainfully employed by a team on the grid until a couple hmm. of weeks ago when this video actually came out. So really sad story for MotoGP. Sadder still that the driver felt that to protect his own future, he had to stay quiet about this, couldn't tell the race organizers, couldn't even tell his own management team, and is only openly speaking about this assault um, because it came to be because of a video. The other quick story here, and I'll talk about this one really quickly, Mark Marquez, who is completing a phenomenal comeback to MotoGP, looking for that maiden victory after his return from that major surgery. Of course, he got his first poll a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it says he is not going to be helpful to rider Alex Rin. So Alex Rin is a rider for Suzuki who will be joining the LCR Honda team. Of course, Mark Marquez rides for the factory Honda team. He says he will be not be helping him with his migration, will not be giving him any advice because it would be quote unquote fake. So Mark Marquez, uh, of course, one <laughs> of the all-time greats, the six times champion looking for that seventh world championship is not looking to help his competitors as they join the broader Honda team. So of course, in MotoGP, you have satellite teams and satellite teams are basically private teams that buy the bikes and typically it would be a prior year bike, but they would buy the bike and the power unit from a factory team. So they call them satellite teams. We're in Formula One, of course, all teams have to develop their own chassis. You can buy a power unit, but in MotoGP, you can effectively buy a bike. And typically the factory teams won't sell you their current bike, but they will sell you a prior year bike. So LCR Honda has 
a team that has had some relative success in the past, especially with British writer Cal Crutchlow, who scored a flurry of podiums with them a couple of years ago. But Alex Rins, of course, the Suzuki team looking to exit MotoGP, unfortunately, end of the end of the year, will be joining the Honda LCR team. But Mark Marquez will not be there to provide him with any professional advice to help with his migration to a Honda bike. Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, you know kind of interesting, but uh, you know that uh, that the uh, Marquez would be feel so protective about it. But just tying it back to that story about Tom Booth Amos, you know that that is just so disturbing. Did you, you know? see the and video, it, by it, the way? It's uh, no, yeah, I haven't. It's, it's I not haven't, good, man. Uh, so I, yeah. Yeah, and it's just a really kind of shocking because when you see that coming out and you hear some of the comments, it's just like it's the proverbial tip of the iceberg, right? And you know, and and as we've talked about things like this before, we've talked about like unacceptable behavior at uh, at a Grand Prix and stuff like that. Is they're unpleasant things to talk about by by shining the light on it and putting these people on blast and, and letting them know that hey, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the rest of us are good people with values and morals, and we're not going to stand for crap like this. And you know, you shouldn't be in sport like that you, that that job that you have is a privilege and you should not be treating anybody like that for 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 any reason uh, whatsoever so as disturbing as it is i find it just like you equally if not more disturbing that this guy hung on for another three years when all of a sudden you know it became almost uh, politically expedient and you know it was almost toxic to hold on to this guy because of the negative uh, press that it was uh, generating but just uh, kind of moving along here uh, before we get into our u.s grand prix uh, preview here so the um, <laughs> this is interesting. So if uh, the uh, the the uh, they get their way, perhaps we could see a triple header of Formula One, MotoGP, and IndyCar at the Circus uh, Circuit of the Americas. I mean, wouldn't that uh, be uh, something if that actually uh, comes off? So this has uh, uh, been something that came up uh, between uh, CODA's chairman Bobby, Bobby Epstein and uh, the race.com's uh, Scott Mitchell Malm and uh, anyways uh, Bobby Epstein had to say quote some of the support races for the fans we need to make some of those uh, of interest to the fans maybe an Indy uh, car support race I'm just throwing it out there I don't know but to make it a full racing weekend unlike anyone's ever done for us might take us and differentiate us from maybe some of the other events it's just a question of how big your paddock could be but as far as the race weekend fills out i think that's it i still want to make it the best place for a racing fan to see the best racing the best competition on the track that we possibly can because i feel like our staff does a great job of delivering the off-track experience and that's all we can control end quote so anyways a great idea i think that some people went to coda last year might have uh, take a bit of exception to that last comment about the uh, the off-track experience I know that uh, there was a lot of complaints about just, uh, you know, merch and food and just uh, everything uh, just uh, kind of being a little bit uh, understaffed. Anyways, let's talk about the race itself now. Circuit of the Americas is a, sorry, a uh, 5.51 kilometer, 3.43 mile long circuit. Race length is 308.41 kilometers, 191.63 miles, 56 laps. Uh, last year in 2021, Max Verstappen had pole. His pole time was 132.910. The podium that day was Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, and Sergio Perez. Lewis setting the fastest lap of a 
4845. So there you go. So, uh, Mark, what are you looking at uh, for this uh, this uh, this weekend? Obviously, the constructors isn't a done deal, especially a little bit uh, further down. There could be some uh, changes there. What, what are you expecting to, to see this weekend? I mean, there's been news that uh, the Charles is going to be taking a grid penalty. So I guess uh, there's a bit of a, you know, the, the Ferrari fans will be dead disappointed at that. And, you know, again, is uh, is this the weekend? Every bets, uh, everyone bets against uh, Max Verstappen, Sergio Perez, and and Red Bull. I think Bull. it would be. Are you willing to no, be that I, bold? I wouldn't be. I'm not willing to be that bold very <laughs> often, and I just feel like this is a power track that will certainly suit the the Red Bull team. And I I think that at this point, Red Bull is very hungry to kind of put their throat their foot on the throat of the competition. Of course, they haven't they haven't sealed up the Constructors' Championship yet. They'll likely do it this weekend. But I also think that they're probably going to do Sergio a solid if Sergio is looking particularly good in free practice and and during during qualifying trim, they might do everything possible, strategically able to put him in a position to win the race. But all of that said, they're never going to hold Max back. And if Max qualifies on pole and he has a good start, or he qualifies on the front row and he can get a quick jump and overtake his competition by that first corner at the top of the hill, I, I just see him running away with this Grand Prix. And I know you read that statistic earlier today about the fact that, hey, Max has won 14 races this year. Well, I guess he's won 12 races that so they've won combined 14 Actually, no. What was that stat again? Adrian Newey. So yeah, they've won 14 races this year. Max has won 12. I have every reason to think they're, they're going to add to that tally and we have four races left. And if Red Bull won all four of the remaining races, that wouldn't surprise me. I think ideally I would like mm-hmm. to see some change in the order and I would like to see some surprises, but I just don't think Red Bull are going to allow that to happen, especially if the conditions are dry, which we expect them to be this weekend. I do want to add just quickly a personal story about Coda, and I'm sure I shared this last year and the year before when we talked about this race but this is a cool track it was the first custom built specifically designed formula one race or furry circuit in north america um it came to be and it was a bit of a surprise when it was proposed like you said back in back in i think the late 2000s and of course really gained momentum in 2010 but the u.s grand prix previously was hosted in indianapolis and if you don't know about the 2005 u.s grand prix go and look it up the race kind of marched on in 2006 and 2007 with far less enthusiasm. But after 2007, the sense was maybe the US never or maybe Formula One never goes back to the US or if they do, there needs to be a significant gap of time to allow to allow that scar that was the 2005 US Grand Prix to heal sufficiently. Um, Formula One did go back in 2012, and it was a race that was won by Lewis Hamilton in his final year with Mercedes. That race is of particular, particular um, it's particularly special to me because that was the first Formula One race me and my now wife watched together. It was kind of cool that we sat down and we watched Lewis Hamilton win a race. And of course, it was the first race uh, in this fantastic venue. But the first few years at this venue were not positive. And it wasn't that the track wasn't mm-hmm. good and it wasn't that it wasn't conducive to great racing. It's just that they had a significant amount of trouble attracting fans. And the way that the event was originally 
set up, not the track, but the actual Formula One event itself, was it was dependent on significant subsidies from the state of Texas. And ultimately, it became something of a political hot potato because on the one hand, the state was dishing out huge subsidies to allow this race to happen at a brand new purpose-built track. But at the same time, the race itself was losing buckets of money every year because they couldn't attract meaningful numbers of fans. And of course, now we look at this event. Um, last year, they drew on the cusp of 400,000 people over the three days. This year, they built additional grandstands to pack in more fans. And we could see some record wow. crowds this weekend. So it's funny what happens when you go through a pandemic and you have some compelling races and the sport's able to market itself better through, of course, the Netflix product drive to survive. So where this event is today is fundamentally different than where it was 10 years ago and fundamentally different from where it was even six or seven years ago when we were talking about exiting the US once again, that this was an aborted attempt. So ultimately, I'm really happy for the circuit. I'm happy for the race organizers that they've been able to find success here. I know they're optimistic about adding some really great supportive support series. It will never be Indy and it will never be MotoGP. Those series aren't about to sign up yep, for that. Yep. But uh, I think that ultimately this has become truly the American Grand Prix. And I know that we're going to have the Miami event. So obviously we had it now. Obviously we're going to go to Las Vegas next year. But to me, I think that this is the backbone of of Formula One in the US. And I think it's cool that it's taking place in a really cool, progressive, urban, hip city like Austin, which just has a fantastic vibe. Yep, I think it's a great place to put it. And I think sometimes if you put something yep. like Formula One in another major city, which already has a ton of other events going for it and professional sporting events, sometimes it just gets lost. I think Austin's a great place for this. In terms of things that I would expect to hear and see this weekend, despite uh, presumably some really strong Red Bull um, performances, one of the things that people have criticized this track for every single year is the quality of the surface, of the aggregate of the tarmac. And for those that live in Texas, particularly in the Austin area, and quite a few of our listeners do, and they were able to vouch for this, um, the buildings are constructed on a thin layer of soil that sits on top of clay and that clay tends to shift a lot. And when this track was built, they didn't correctly build the drainage. And when moisture gets on the track, the mm. clay starts to shift and that ripples the surface. So over the years, we've heard endless complaints from the MotoGP riders, especially, but also the Formula One drivers about the quality of the track. So every single year, there's complaints. The race organizers, their track owners will go out and resurface parts of the track, but they've never gone back to fundamentally solve the issue, which is that it's built on top of clay and the drain drainage system is broken. So ultimately, eventually, they're going to have to mm. spend $100 million and dig up the drainage system rebuild it and relay the aggregate, the tarmac. But for now, they do a patchwork quilt approach where they only address it where it's really bad. And the problem with that in Formula One is that if the track isn't smooth and it's rippled, cars tend to lose traction, which means that they're more unpredictable in corners, which means they can carry less speed through the corner so you get less racing. Um, and it also means that you get less excitement because drivers are less willing to take risks if the cars are bouncing unpredictably and there is less traction. So hopefully that won't be too much of an issue this weekend, but historically that has been a pain point for this track. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point uh, to mention. Cause we have seen uh, over the last couple of years, just like you say, like these uh, patchwork quilt uh, repair jobs, but a hundred billion bucks, that's, that's a big price tag to dig it all up and, and repair it and, and, and build it the way that it should have been done. 
uh, in the first place. Um, anyways, I just wanted to go down just quickly. So six-time winners of this uh, Grand Prix. There's only one of them. So that's uh, Lewis Hamilton, first one in 2007, most recently in 2017. Michael Schumacher won in uh, the USA five times. Three-time winners include Graham Hill and Jim Clark. And two-time winners include Jackie Stewart, James Hunt, Carlos Reutemann, and Ayrton Senna. Uh, the winningest constructor is uh, Ferrari. They won first in uh, 1975, most recently in 2018. Eight-time winners include Lotus McLaren. Six-time winners include Mercedes, although one of those uh, don't count uh, because the U.S. Grand Prix in 1910 was not a championship, a Formula One-sanctioned uh, championship because the, the series didn't exist in 1910. Uh, Three-times winners include uh, BRM, and two-times winners include Tyrrell and Red Bull, who won most recently in 2021. And just uh, pulling up the uh, the stats from the 1991 U.S. Grand Prix was held in Phoenix, Arizona that year. I just uh, pulled it up because I saw Ayrton Senna's name there. So Senna won. The podium included Alain Prost and Nelson uh, Piquet. Prost uh, that year was driving for Ferrari. Piquet was driving for Benetton. Going down the top 10, you had Stefano Modena driving for Tyrrell Honda. Satoru Nakajima for Tyrrell Honda as well. Aguri Suzuki for Lola Ford. Nicola Rini was seventh uh, driving a Lambo Lamborghini. Gabriella Tarquini driving an AGS Ford, Pierre Luigi Martini driving a Minardi Ferrari, and then rounding out the top 10 was Bertrand Gachot, the Belgian driver, was driving a Jordan Ford. So there you go, real blast from the past. But there was a huge amount of uh, cars. There were 29, sorry, uh, let's see, there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 cars that did not uh, finish that race. So that meant uh, that almost uh, you know 50%, there are 26 cars that, uh, that did not uh, or took part in that race. So 16 of them did not uh, or only managed to finish that race. And then there was a whole bunch that didn't even qualify. So a lot more cars uh, potentially way back in that uh, day. Anyways, uh, that's about it uh, from me and from you. And um, I know that you you want to just make a quick mention of something that you always do at this time. So we got do our hundredth review, right? So last week when you and I were sitting here, we had asked, we had pleaded for our listeners that if you enjoy the show. All we could ask is that if you listen on Spotify, give us a review. Well, not a review. If you're on Spotify, give us a rating. It's super easy. You just click the stars. And if you listen on Apple, if you can give us a rating and a review, it means the world to us. And we've been sitting at 99 reviews for a long time. This week, we got two reviews that came in. Um, eventually, we should probably start reading these and sharing them. But we got two fantastic reviews yeah, this we week. Should. So thank you to both of those people that took the time to reach out and give us those reviews. It means the world to us. And and honestly, you know, we don't totally understand the mechanics and the algorithms that drive the visibility of podcasts on the big podcast platforms. But what we do know helps is reviews. And obviously, we want to be able to reach the biggest audience that we can. And reviews really help to drive awareness of the show. So if that's something you can take a couple of minutes to do, log into Apple Podcasts or log into Spotify and give us a review and a rating. Uh, like I said, it means the world to both of us. And finally, if you have a couple of minutes in the next week, please check out that interview with Steph Wentworth. She is fantastic. She's a presenter for FOM and a number of different broadcast partners with major motorsports disciplines globally. Um, but that would mean the world to both of us. And I see Gil in the live chat saying done. So Gil, thank you so much, my friend. 
Cool. That's awesome. And I, I'm actually, I do have those two reviews uh, here, so I'm just going to read them out. First one comes from E7471 from Apple Podcasts USA. And uh, they have to say, it's a great place to relax and enjoy F1. I truly enjoy the show. I keep hitting refresh to get excited for a new show. Keep up the great work and thank you for everything. And the second one comes from Steve0118 from Apple Podcasts Canada. And Steve says, I'm new to F1, watched the Netflix series in 2021 and loved it. Then for the 2022 season, I purchased F1 TV and found this podcast to go alongside of getting into the world of F1. Well, what a fantastic job that this podcast does of keeping me informed of what's happening in between race weekends. So to Steve and to E7471, thank you both very, very much. And we'll give them a joint tie for the 100th uh, review. So much appreciated uh, to both of you. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, great to, to have you on board again. Thank you to everybody that was in the live stream on YouTube. You can check that out. Just uh, go over to YouTube, hit the sub button and notifications. And you'll get, uh, you'll find out when we go live, usually about 9 p.m. Pacific, uh, midnight Eastern. I know it's a little bit late for, for some of you, but uh, definitely uh, come and hang out with some of the regulars like Rocky and Connie and Daniel and, uh, and Gil, to, to name but a few, and Marshall. I don't want to forget uh, anyone, excuse me if I have, but uh, that's that's all I got right now. So thank you one and all. Enjoy the U.S. Grand Prix. We'll be back on Sunday night if you want to get in touch with us. I know there was a couple of emails in the email box. We'll read that out on uh, Sunday. Um, you can uh, reach us at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or on Twitter at scooteryf1pod. So that's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy the race. Talk to you guys again on Sunday night. So bye for now. <laughs>